It's really lovely to be here this morning. Um, before I, I get into what I have brought, uh, when I was preparing for this morning, um, I got the impression from God that there's someone here that has a problem in the area of their diaphragm. I think it's a lady perhaps, but and it's a long-standing issue, it's been given discomfort. And if that is the case, I'd like them to maybe afterwards go to either Margaret or myself or somebody in leadership for prayer because I think God will touch you powerfully today. Father, we really want to thank you for your wonderful love, your care and your provision. We live in days where we really don't know if it's up is up or up is down or down is up. It's hard to know. But we do remember that you are God and that you're an awesome God and you love us individually. And we thank you for that. Amen. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, most of you will be familiar with him and his life. But I'd just like to remind us about the fact that when Paul was converted to follow Christ, he was actually um, pursuing Christians to destroy them. He had overseen the death of... Um, Stephen, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, we don't know about others, but like the others, and he was off to Damascus to find others to put in prison and likely to stone. And God was fed up with that, and he knocked him off his donkey and blinded him. And I'm glad he did that, because Paul went on to give an incredible example of what it is to follow Christ. And some of what Paul says and does, I, I can't get my hand around, head around, but some of it is really good and gives us an idea of how we should live and what we should expect from God. In um, chapter 27 of Acts, Acts 27, and I am going to read quite a lot of scripture this morning, but it's a story, it's a true story, and I want you to remember this, this is a true story, it actually happened, and this talks about... Um, Goes, we go on to look at Paul getting shipwrecked. And I'd like you to remember that this is the third time that Paul got shipwrecked. He'd been shipwrecked twice before. We, I, I'm not aware of any accounts of it, but later in Scripture, Paul says, I'm shipwrecked three times. So this was the last time he was shipwrecked. 
And I would think from then he prayed for air travel. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, he didn't go too far after that. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, this is Paul, is going to be put, he's going to see, he's going to Rome, is where he's headed, to see Caesar. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius. Now Julius was obviously a senior officer, he's in charge of a hundred men. But his authority came through the sword, and I want you to remember this. This is a leader with authority from Caesar, and he exercised it through his men and his sword and his spear. That was how he worked. We boarded a ship from Danitrum, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they may provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sindus. When the wind did not allow us <coughs> to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacey. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them. Now, we've seen, we got the guy in charge, his, his authority comes through the sword, and here we have another leader whose authority comes through the spirit. So Paul warned them, and he also from experience, he's been in the sea twice before. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion instead listened Listen to what Paul said instead, sorry, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. And since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on.
hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sartis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is what happens when you don't listen to the Spirit. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul, the other leader, stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And <laughs> it doesn't sound like a great, great thing, does it, really? <laughs> You're not getting away with it this easy, Paul. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Isn't that amazing? I'm not going to just save you, Paul. I'm going to save everyone with you, including the guy with the sword. So keep up your courage men, for I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were, approach they were approaching land, and they took soundings and found the water was a hundred and twenty feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern 
and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape, to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. When Paul, then Paul said to the centurion, Paul here really pulls rank. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. That's a lot of people. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. When God gives us um, a chance of life, it doesn't need always mean that it's going to be easy. My God didn't run these guys right, right up onto a sandy beach. This was still not easy. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. And the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. Once, <coughs> once they landed, there's some incredible things happen, and, and I really want you to take notice of what happened when they landed. Once safely on shore, we find, found out the island was called Malta, and the islanders showed us no unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all, 
because it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven by the, out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after praying and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And they honoured us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Now, I find this whole story to be absolutely incredible. We get uh, these guys are shipwrecked. They land. They make a fire. Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake. Obviously it was a poisonous snake because the islanders expected Paul to die. And he didn't die because God wanted him to stand before Caesar. And the interesting thing for me is when he goes into the bedroom of the sick man, he doesn't say that Paul went in and prayed for him and he was healed, does it? He says he went in and he prayed and then he healed him. It was a separate action. I think sometimes we cop out in that we forget that Jesus asked us to heal the sick. We know scripture tells us to pray for the sick. But scripture also tells us to heal the sick. And I would much rather pray for the sick and leave it to God <laughs> and step out and say, be healed in Jesus' name, which is healing the sick. But this is what we're asked to do. And this is what Paul did. And I think it's, it's a reminder to me and maybe to you that sometimes when there's somebody sick and we pray for them, we want to be conscious, we want to be aware that maybe God wants us to heal them for his glory. And... You think, well, 
I can't heal the sick. You know, that's God's work. Yes, it is. But I know once when I was here before, I remember reading something that we'd written down and it said, the hands of the Almighty are often found at the end of our own arms. Right? We need to remember that. In 2 Corinthians, we get to a point where Paul, just remembering what Paul has been through, and the power of God that is pouring through Paul, because of Paul, that whole 200 and however many people were saved. Because of Paul, all the sick on the island of Malta were healed. So here we have one man that God is using powerfully. And we move along to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And Paul is suffering from something physically wrong with him. To keep me from being conceited, he, he had had some visions previous to this. To keep me from being becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations there was given me a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is my word for you today. I believe this is what God wants me to tell all of us. My grace is sufficient for you, each one of you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There are some people in this room that might be older than me. And some are trying to catch up with me. <laughs> and with that goes physical deterioration, because we're getting older. And because of that, we think we're less useful. That's not what I read. I read that we're actually more useful. Therefore, I will, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, for that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, 
For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Father, thank you for your word. I, there was one little story I was going to tell after that, and that there's a friend of mine who was a missionary for 16 years on the Thai-Vietnam border at the time of the Vietnam War. And he saw an absolute incredible workings of God through him and his wife and their ministry. He saw the dead raised. He saw people, he was bitten by a poisonous snake and did not die. He saw Viet Cong come into his hut where he was preaching and fall down on their faces because they saw visions of angels. He saw people out in the rice paddies or he had people come in from rice paddies to say that the Viet Cong had attacked them and run away because of what they had seen. They saw the power of God. But this man, right now, he's 80 years old and he's got cancer. And he's been in and out of hospital with cancer for a year or more. And when I last spoke to him, he was bubbling like a fresh spring. He said, I get in all kinds of opportunities. He said, in lockdown, we can't have visitors, but I'm in hospital and I get nurses and I get doctors and I get nurses. And they all say, what did you used to do? And I tell them, and they're spellbound. So I think that's a real good reminder. As we get older, as we get weaker, it doesn't mean we're useless. <laughs> Did you say you need your notes? Pardon? Did you say you need your notes? No, I said, I guess. I do. You'd rather not know. <laughs> Let me pray for you before you speak. So, Father, we thank you for Ross and we thank you for the way that you speak to him. And we pray, Lord, as he uh, delivers the message that you have given him today, Lord, that you would loosen his tongue, that you would clear his mind, and that you would give him a special anointing by your Holy Spirit um, this morning. We thank you for him. We thank you for him and Gail and um, the blessing they are to us. And I pray that you would just bestow your blessing on them today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Oh, there, you take that off. <laughs> ah. Well, it's good, to <laughs> it's good to be here. So hopefully this will work out all right this morning. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 23 this morning. We'll be reading from the New International Version when we get to it there. And I got this all typed off there this morning, and it looks different on paper than it does on my... Anyways, <laughs> you're writing, so bear with me on that. <laughs> so it was Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. Now on this Palm Sunday... 
we begin to look at what happened on that first Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on a Roman cross for the sins of all humankind. And this is the greatest story of religious apostasy in all of Israel's rather tragic history. The Apostle John said in John 1 verse 11, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And that is much of the response of Israel to the arrival of their Messiah. And that becomes clear on his, the final steps, the last steps to the cross. Now before reaching this point, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his chosen twelve. He was denied three times by Peter, the leader of the twelve. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers who held him under arrest. He was prosecuted by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, who sought his death. They sent him to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, for trial to seek the death sentence upon him. And Pilate sent him to Herod, a Jew who was the Roman governor of Galilee, to get his judgment. And he was sent back to Pilate for the final verdict. And Pilate repeatedly pronounced Jesus innocent. And yet he accepted reluctantly, but without protest, to the crowd and the Sanhedrin to send him to be crucified. So now Jesus was sentenced to carry the cross to his own crucifixion. So let's look at verses 26 to 33, as I say, reading from the NIV. Now as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they had come to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. This is the last steps to the execution of the Son of God. From Pilate's judgment hall to Skull Hill, or Golgotha in Hebrew, or Calvary in Latin, was only a short walk, a few hundred yards. But his steps to the skull didn't begin with his birth in Bethlehem, but are simply the final steps of a journey that had begun in heaven, when there was no time no space, no world. It started when God determined that he would create and would redeem and would send his only son to pay the price of that redemption. Every step of his preordained. That is why the Bible says that he is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And that's Revelation 13, 8. 
When he was born on earth in Bethlehem, there was a shadow of a cross, as it were, across his manger. He had come to save his people from their sins. He said that he had come to serve and not be served and give his life a ransom for many. And from the very beginning of the time of his birth on earth, it was clear that he would be the one who would suffer. When it was time for Mary and Joseph to take him to the temple to have him dedicated in Luke chapter 2, there was a man there named Simeon, who being inspired by the Holy Spirit said that this child was going to be for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. Do you remember that song? And because of that, a sword would be driven through the heart of his mother. She would have to watch him die in the end on the cross. From the very beginning of his ministry, he said over and over, I must die. I will be arrested. I will be scourged. I will be spit upon. I will be crucified. I will rise again. And so here we find him being escorted out of Pilate's judgment hall after the mockery of injustice that has gone on through the night and in the early hours of the morning, headed to his execution. Now notice in our scripture reading that we've read here, there is no mention of any disciples or any of those who were nearest and dearest to Jesus along his last steps to the cross. So where are they? Well, they've scattered in terror upon the arrest of Jesus, fearing for their own lives and feeling that all their hopes and dreams were smashed and it was all over. And when Jesus does arrive at the cross and is being crucified, the apostle John shows up with four women who were especially near and dear to Jesus, but they were at a distance. And so Jesus takes his last steps to the cross, as it were, alone. Now, the, an interesting note, or I think it's interesting, the temple where Simeon pronounced that early prophecy was only a few steps from Skull Hill and from Pilate's judgment hall. It's as if Jesus' life has come full circle. Jesus' last steps to the cross is a riveting story. So we'll begin in verse 26, as they led him away. Now they refers to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that had put him on trial and pressed for his execution, which was made up of the Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, chief priests, and high priests. There were the Roman soldiers who were responsible to get Jesus to the cross and execute him. There was the disorderly crowd screaming, screaming for his crucifixion. It is this mixed mob who leads Jesus away. They have pulled off the greatest miscarriage of justice that could ever be pulled off in human history because this is the most innocent person who has ever lived. When they led him away, the Roman soldiers seized Simon of Cyrene, or Cyrene, either one, I like Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. 
Now, as an occupied city, Roman law gave its soldiers the right of conscription. They could draft anyone they wanted to do their bidding at a moment's notice. And the custom was for a soldier to take the flat part of his spear blade and put it on the shoulder of any person anywhere, and that person was immediately brought into the service of Rome. He took his spear and put it on the shoulder of the closest, ablest body man, who turned out in this case to be Simon from Serene, a city in North Africa in the region of Libya, modern-day Tripoli. Now Luke doesn't tell us any more or anything else about Simon. We know that he was a black man because he's from Africa, northern Africa. But this man from Serene does appear two more times in the New Testament in Luke chapters 27, verse 32, and Mark 15, verse 21. Now the fact that Simon is mentioned in all three synoptic gospels suggests that his later history was known to each of the gospel writers, which would in, in, indicate, huh, tongue, that he, Luke, she said, right? I remember. <laughs> would indicate that he became a Christian. In his account of this incident, Mark expands on that of Luke and tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And the only reason Luke or Mark would have mentioned them by name would be because he knew his readers would know who he was talking about. Because by the time Mark's gospel was circulated, two of the most famous Christians in the empire were Simon's sons. And later in Romans 16, verse 13, we find Rufus mentioned again, described as the son of a woman who was whom the Apostle Paul considered his surrogate mother. So who was this woman's husband? Simon. <laughs> okay. So that tells you something. Now there was a large Jewish community living in Tripoli back then, and Simon had no doubt come to Jerusalem as a pilgrim to observe Passover along with a lot of other Jews from Cyrene and other places in the world. Now this may be the first time that he ever met Jesus because it says he was on his way in from the country. And that's about an 800 mile journey. And this is very important. This means that Simon had nothing to do with all that had preceded he has just arrived because this is Friday to celebrate Passover. <clears throat> but now he meets Jesus in a most amazing way. And while it may appear or might appear that this is a random thing on the part of the soldiers, this is far from random on the part of God. And this is why he has a name that he's named. It says they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now this is unusual because Roman law said the victim must carry his own cross to his own execution. And Jesus did that. John 19 verse 17 says Jesus went out carrying his own cross. 
Luke says they put the cross on Simon and made him carry it behind Jesus. Behind Jesus. Now this could indicate that Jesus was carrying the entire cross and that the long end of the cross was bumping along the cobblestones as he ascended the hill. You can picture that. And that what happened was to speed things along and still not violating Roman law, the soldiers put the tail end of the cross on Simon's back and he assisted Jesus in the carrying of it. Simon carried the cross together with Jesus. That's what I got out of that, because Jesus did carry the cross. Now, if you put the pieces together, it becomes obvious that Simon became a Christian. His forced conscription, <clears throat> excuse me, to carry, to help Jesus carry the cross became a doorway to eternal life for him. And I'm sure he would tell us that his chance encounter with Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to him. The purpose of a pilgrimage is to get closer to God and Simon met God in the flesh. And Luke tells us that as Jesus continued the journey to the cross, it says he passed a group of women in verse 27 who mourned and wailed for him. In fact, they were screaming out, not because they knew Jesus, but because they are the professional mourners who were doing their duty. Now that doesn't mean that they were unsympathetic. They are, were women who dared to come out when men were crucified, when the families come and cry over their deaths. Another note here, nowhere in the four gospels will you find that a woman is hostile to Jesus, or that a woman rebuked Jesus or that a woman spoke evil of Jesus. Only the men. Uh -huh. <laughs> Just a little note. <laughs> it's <was> interesting. <laughs> yeah, miserable men. <laughs> That's one for you ladies. <laughs> Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, is a word that means to pound your chest. And that's the symbol of the agony of death. So these women were beating themselves and verbally wailing as our Lord went to the cross. And I'm sure they were surprised that day because never before in all their tears, in all their wailing, in all their journeys to all their crosses, never before had they had a man do what Jesus did. In verse 28, he actually turned and expressed sympathy for them. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now daughters of Jerusalem or sometimes daughters of Zion simply mean the people of Jerusalem. And though Jesus was dying, he pointed out that their weeping should be for Jerusalem and its inhabitants since judgment was going to fall on that city. Now Jerusalem here represents the entire nation of Israel. 
In verse 29, Jesus says, the days are coming when they will say, that is the judgment, the days of judgment, the days of the destruction of Jerusalem, when they will say, they, meaning the people alive at that time, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. The worst thing that could happen to a Jewish woman was to be barren. It was like a divine curse in their culture. To be barren was viewed as a disgrace. And that's why in chapter 21, verse 23, Jesus said, pray when the judgment, the destruction happens, you're not pregnant or you're not nursing. Better if you would never have children than to see your children slaughtered. When the death in judgment falls, the destruction will be so vicious that those who have no children will have the least suffering. It will get so bad, verse 30 says, then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. These are prophecies of the destruction in Israel that started in the year 66 and ended in the year 70 with hundreds of thousands of Jews slaughtered, men, women, and children. I think Josephus says there was 1.1 million of them at that time. And Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then Jesus' final words to them as he walks to the cross, verse 31, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now here, Jesus is referring back to the destruction of Israel. And he is saying, if this is what the Romans do to the green tree, meaning himself, what are they going to be doing to the dry, meaning Israel? What is going to happen to the dry, dead nation? And so he says to them, you better weep and you better weep for yourselves, not for me. In the Bible, Jesus often referred as the tree, the tree of life, the tree of, I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay. In verses 32 to 43, we read, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke is the only gospel that records the different responses of the two criminals next to Jesus. One mocked him like the rest, that he should save himself and them. And the other not only recognized Jesus' innocence, but believed that he was in fact the Messiah who will bring in God's kingdom. And therefore he asked Jesus to remember him when he enters his kingdom. And this was certainly not because he understood everything. It only meant that he recognized that Jesus was not only innocent, but the bearer of God's kingdom. And so he asked to be remembered by Jesus and was saved. Now, this is truly remarkable. A deathbed conversion. This is the only one in the Bible. Why? So that no one would despair, but only one. So that no one would presume. You know what that means? You can't presume that you're going to be saved on your deathbed. If you reject Jesus all your life, there's no guarantee that you're going to be saved at that time. The Gospel of Luke is the only Gospel that records Jesus' words of forgiveness while he was hanging on the cross. In this, Jesus fulfilled his own command to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's Matthew 5, verse 44. And so we won't dwell on that. Mm. The forgiveness here was for the soldiers that were crucifying him. And then they were down casting lots for us. So he said, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Okay. In the midst of this awesome display of love, Jesus is not honored. Instead, he is mocked, and his enemies sneered at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Now, it is precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. Love kept Jesus on the cross, not the nails. And so now we move from Jesus hanging on the cross to his dying on the cross, verses 44 to 49. It was now but the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, <coughs> excuse me, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. <clears throat> the hours that Jesus hung on the cross was from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, according to the Jewish day. This is 12 noon to 3 p.m. in our time. And this was the brightest and hottest part of the day. And yet, darkness descended at these hours when Jesus was on the cross. It was a solar eclipse. A lot of scientists not argue with that. Anyways, astronomy tells us that a solar eclipse can only be during a new moon. 
But the Passover, when Jesus was crucified, is always at a full moon. Check your calendar when you go home. Friday, Good Friday is a full moon. Always. I guess that's why it changes, right? Never the same one each time. Those are just interesting things. Scientists can say whatever they like. <laughs> because it was a super, supernatural act of the Father to show the sin of humanity and the cruelty shown to Jesus. It is a sign of our sin and of God's anger against evil. It's God that caused it. Now at the time of Jesus' death, when he cried out to the Father to receive his spirit, the temple curtain was torn in two. <clears throat> now this was a thick, heavy curtain, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and is four inches thick. It separated the most holy place from the holy place within the temple. And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was, along with other things. It represented the very presence of God. And that is where he appeared if he made his presence felt. And this place was accessible only to the high priest. And only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the priest would reverently, cautiously, go behind this huge curtain and see something no one else could ever see, that secret place, the residence of God on earth. And then he would offer a sacrifice, seeking forgiveness for the entire nation of Israel. He must have been scared whenever he, whenever he did this annual duty for God had actually allowed people to die in that holy of holies die just from the awesome of coming into his presence they even had a custom of tying a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he went in so that if he died they could pull the body out without having to enter themselves and risk their own lives to get it just another tidbit it was truly, it was truly an awesome place, an awesome thing to be in the presence of God. And the tearing of the curtain in two was a sign that with the death of Christ, God had opened a way for his faithful people to approach him directly in and through Christ. In Christ, the barrier of our sin that prevents us from being able to draw near to the Father is removed. But only in Christ. We cannot do so apart from Him, on our own or by any other way. Christ is the only way of salvation for all humankind. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. 
And Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You know that curtain they say was so heavy it took 300 priests to... <laughs> That's all. Anyways, four inches thick. Now, we move to verses 47 and 49. 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now the centurion who praised God and saw Jesus for who he was, a righteous man, is a picture of all who come to Jesus through the cross. And verse 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Those leaving the sight of the crucifixion Beating their breasts was a sign of deep mourning and guilt. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands up accusing them of murder in Acts chapter 2, there is no argument from them. Verse 49. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now Luke notes that Jesus' acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, including Mary, his mother, were witnesses of his execution, his crucifixion. It identifies for us who among these who followed Jesus actually witnessed all that happened through his last steps to the cross, on the cross itself, except what happened next. To be continued then. <laughs> Be the resurrection, right? <laughs> okay. It's serious here. But this. Shall we pray? Father God, we who know you and love you, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are going to do or to go to that cross to bear our sins and that you opened up our hearts like the thief on the cross that we might be with you forever in paradise. Somewhere in your infinite glorious heaven you have a place prepared for us and we will escape all doubts and fears and sins and enter into eternal bliss. This, Heavenly Father, is your gift to us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we have worshipped you today because you are a God of such grace and eternal generosity to us who are so undeserving. And so I ask, Lord, that you work your work in all our hearts and we'll thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. It was rather long this morning, but you know something? I was saying to Gail this morning, most of those church services back then were three hours long. <laughs> and she said, well, what about people that have to take pills and medication and lunch? Well, they had food there. They would either bring it or they had it there with them.